We'd rather have Jesus. We'd rather have Jesus. Mm-hmm. Lord, help us. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what's a hero? Who are our heroes? And would Paul be a hero from our perspective if he was living and ministering today? Simple question. Would we see Paul as a hero, as a person of honor, as successful? Like most of us, at least I certainly did, dreamed of being a hero. Am I right? You can all imagine Pastor T pretending to be Spider-Man in his back. No, no. Let the, let the listener understand. We all, I, those of us who know Pastor George prob- probably suspect that somewhere uh, he's got a Jedi um, hood and lightsaber stashed somewhere and he runs, no. Um, we do, we imagine being heroes. We aspire, some of, us, some of us still aspire to be heroes. Some of us feel like heroes when we get the kids to bed, right? What's a hero? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Our our, our ushers are coming down. Uh, They've got Bibles for you if you need a Bible, whether to borrow or uh, or if you don't own a Bible, take this as our gift to you. So if you need a Bible, just raise a hand. They're coming. Thank you, sisters. So what qualifies someone as a hero? What makes someone deserving of honor? How do we define success? How do we define those we look up to? And similarly, and maybe more difficulty, at what point does a hero lose their hero status? What is it for us that causes us to walk away, maybe angry, disappointed, embarrassed, at who we thought was our hero? So what's a hero? Dictionary defines it as a person who is admired or idealized for courage, outstanding achievement, or noble qualities. But I don't know that that actually helps us very much, does it? I think when we think about heroes, we think about stories, right? We think about those examples, those cases from story, that we know it's sort of in the pit of our stomach is, oh, that, that's a hero. And we do this in all sorts of fields, in all sorts of ways, right? We talk about heroics on the sports field, whether college or professional, or maybe you're still reliving the glory days of Little League Baseball, right? We do this... uh, Obviously, in comic books, whether it's Marvel or DC, Star Wars, we do it in history. We do it in fields like management or business. Heroes. So what's a hero? And what is our expectation of a hero? 
And I think, I think what, what Paul is going to call us to, part of what God is going to do for us this morning, so that we can hear his call on our lives, is we need to recalibrate what qualifies as a hero. Recalibrate what qualifies as heroic in our imagination. We need our minds and our imaginations sanctified around this idea of hero. I think pop philosophers, DJ Khaled, define, define what we expect of our heroes in a song that I got to know through Emma Stone. Line, the first line goes, all I do is win, 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 no matter what, right? Is, so so the, the question is, is that our expectation of our heroes? Is that our expectation of ourselves? You know, uh, maybe you remember um, the late Senator John McCain. Naval fighter pilot during the Vietnam War was shot down and spent five and a half years in a Vietnamese prison camp. Considered many, by many, a hero for his courage and valor and honor in which he um, suffered those five and a half years. But then maybe we also remember former President Trump during, in the midst of his campaign, say, Senator McCain, he's not a hero. He's a hero because he got captured? I like people who weren't captured. Now, many rebuked the, pre the then candidate to Trump. But I think as we learned, I think many of us nodded along going, you know, maybe he's got a point. Do we expect that our heroes always win? That they always win without fault or struggle or suffering? Do we expect them to win in a way that they never suffer long? And maybe we would say, no, of course not. But maybe, but maybe we prefer that fiction. Maybe the longest we're al uh, we allow our heroes to suffer is the five-year gap between Marvel's Infinity War and Endgame, where they, where they sat five years in defeat. But we only tolerate that, that five years of defeat because they ended up inventing time travel and undoing that defeat. Maybe. It's an absurd expectation that our heroes always win. Fit, fitting only for the world of comic books. And yet, I think there's part of us that loves when our leaders pretend they never fall short. We see this from CEOs, to managers, to politicians, even church leaders maybe members of our own family, refuse to admit 
sin, suffering, failure, struggle, lack of right answers. In his book, um, Something's Not Right, Decoding the Hidden Tactics of Abuse and Freeing Yourself from Its Power, Wade Mullen describes the practice called impression management, where people, through lying, intimidation, flattery, boasting, and self-promotion, carefully manage their own public image to exercise unquestioned control over others, often with deeply abusive effects. See, there's part of us that want perfect heroes. And many in our fallen world are willing to lie, cheat, and steal to attain a public persona that gives us what we want. And, have we, and as we've seen in all, all too starkly over the last few years, many are willing to lie, cheat, steal, and fight to maintain that false public persona for their heroes. So is Paul a hero? He says, Ephesians 3, chapter 1, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. Paul's admitting he's in prison. Maybe admitting is not the right word. Everyone knows. But in, in saying this, he seems to be failing every element of impression management, every, uh, everything we might think about uh, 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 creating a personal brand. He's admitting suffering. And in admitting his suffering, in admitting his confinement, this thing that, we might, uh, that might appear, well, in their world and ours, shameful, are we willing to accept Paul as hero, as authority, as honored. Now, it's church. We know the right answers, right? We serve a suffering Messiah, one who was abused and beaten and died. And yet we still need this recalibration to say what I expect of my heroes and what I expect of myself from the stories that we tell must be and need to be a whole lot more like my suffering Messiah than whatever other hero I've placed in my hall of fame. So let's turn, turn to Ephesians 3, verse 1. We're going to see Paul explain his situation. And then we're going to see his prayer for the Ephesians. And I think this is going to recalibrate for us both our expectation of what it means to be successful as a minister of Jesus and what our calling is as Jesus's followers. So Ephesians 1, 1 to 13. For this reason, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And as, uh, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations at his, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the work of his power. To me, though I am the very, very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known uh, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, which uh, he had realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. So Paul continues his letter. Yes, if you were here last week, you remember. Um, he continues uh, from what we call chapter two, um, that in Christ, God in Christ is creating one new people, one new humanity, Jew and Greek together, defined by faith, not ethnicity, um, that, that this new community is defined by faith, not ethnicity, is the people whom God is lovingly choosing, adopting, redeeming, and making inheritors of his kingdom, all for the praise of his glory. That by faith, we get to enter a family and a kingdom for the glory of God and get to share in the benefits. And we're gonna, we, we saw that in chapter two. We're going to see that in chapter four in a couple of weeks. Many believe, now, many believe that Paul here is actually like dictating the letter. He's, he's speaking and, and someone else is writing. And there's this, it, it, it's sort of funny to read this in, a, in, a, uh, you know, in, a, in an academic commentary, but there's sort of this, like, Paul gets to the end of verse one, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and it's like his thought stops and he tangents, which makes me feel a little bit better about what happens in my classroom when I teach. It's like, wait a second, I was going to say something else, but I got to cover this first. I'm a prisoner. That might be discouraging to you. So he stops. We're going to see, he's going to pick up that thought that he starts in verse one, in verse 14. He says, um, he realizes that saying he's a prisoner, and again, we, we think maybe they had heard this already, but, it, but acknowledging that that's the fact may be some discouragement. So he's going he's gonna to create a section here, verses uh, 2 to 13, for the purpose of explaining his situation so that they wouldn't be discouraged. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, which is, for, which is your glory. Paul recognizes um, uh, well, let, let, let's back up. Why is Paul in prison? 
Acts 21, don't need to turn there. I'll summarize it quickly. It's long. Paul has returned from his missionary work, right? Maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. Um, he'd, been, he'd been ministering in Asia and Greece, going all over the empire, trying to plant Jew plus Gentile communities in Christ's churches. Um, and he's, he's made a vow, he's made a purity vow, and returns to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he meets with James, and he and James work together, seeking to clear up some of the ambiguities and the controversy around Paul's teaching about the law and the Gentiles. Um, and while he's in the midst of this, some Jews from Asia, and remember Asia in, in their mind was what we would call modern day Turkey, um, which is where Ephesus is, accuse Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple courts beyond the, uh, the court of the Gentiles and into the courts that were proper only for Jewish people. And the specific person they accuse Paul of bringing in is a guy named Trophimus, an Ephesian. So interestingly that he brings up his imprisonment because it seems like that his imprisonment has everything to do with the Ephesian community. And we don't know a lot about, uh, about Trophimus, or at least I don't. Maybe there's, maybe there's scholars that know more. Maybe he's a disciple of Paul. Maybe he's a traveling companion. Maybe he's just an old friend that happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time, and they like connected. But the conservative Jews saw Paul on his purity vow hanging out with a Gentile and lost it. Maybe they were looking for an excuse to accuse him anyway. But they accused him of bringing Trophimus, this Gentile, into the temple courts, which was, well, punishable by death for Trophimus. But interestingly, they don't go after him. They go after Paul. And we don't have any reason to believe that Paul actually did this. Doesn't seem to be anything to gain in it. Remember, we had said, uh, I think last week, that the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit no longer dwelled specially in that temple in Jerusalem. It now lived in the temple, in, in what temple? The, us, right? The church. It moved out of that building into our hearts at Pentecost. So there doesn't seem to be any reason that Paul would flout the, um, the rules, the laws surrounding the temple. And yet we saw last week in Ephesians 2 that, oh, Paul uses this rhetoric, uh, this, this imagery of tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And again, there was a dividing wall in the temple. We can see why this, uh, uh, this accusation might stick. So that, uh, these Jews from Asia, maybe even particularly from uh, uh, from Ephesus, rile up the crowd, rile up the mob. And Paul is arrested. He is eventually arrested by the Romans um, in part to make sure that there's not a riot. Um, um, and he's held in prison and has to, uh, has to stand trial before a number of officials. And Paul works the system and he's, he's preaching the gospel of this official and that official. Mostly they're ignoring him and they don't care. But Paul then leverages the, the, the Roman legal system to get an all expenses paid trip as a prisoner to Rome to stand before Caesar. It's kind of low-key awesome, right? We don't, we don't know what's in Paul's mind, but Paul's like, I'm going to take this right to the top. I'm going to take the gospel to Caesar, and we'll see what happens. I'm going to suffer as a prisoner to take this right to the top and see what happens. 
So, uh, so Paul's in prison. He's in prison in part by choice, uh, but largely because he has um, he's committed to the gospel that brings Jews and Gentiles together in faith in Jesus. A gospel that was, well, at various levels, in various places, in various times, really unpopular. And yet, at, on the flip side, also really popular. So Paul says, um, I'm a prisoner, so let me explain. He says, I, I assume you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. So Paul, Paul says, look, I serve a king, a father, a patron, who has entrusted me with this message, with this good news that the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, one new body, not one replacing the other, but being redefined and reestablished around faith in Messiah Jesus. And he says, this wasn't anticipated in the Old Testament, at least not universally. Just as we, they, uh, there wasn't a universal expectation that the Messiah would suffer and die for the sins of his people. Much of, while, while we see hints and clues of this, um, all the world being united in the Messiah and the Messiah suffering and dying in the Old Testament as we look back, it was not the expectation then. Now, we do know that there were communities of God-fearing Gentiles all throughout the empire on the, uh, that, that had come to faith in the God of Israel on the basis of the, well, the, the testimony of the people of God, the Jewish people in those towns. But many were seen and maybe even treated as sort of second-class citizens within like the people of God until they had become full-fledged Israelites by, uh, by bringing themselves under uh, the entirety of the Mosaic law. And so Paul says, like, no, 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 in Jesus, you don't have to do that. It's faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that makes you fully an inheritor of God's kingdom. So Paul explains, like, look, this is why I'm in prison. This is what this is all about. Now, it's interesting. Uh, he describes this as a mystery. And Paul uses this language in a number of places and a number of times. Uh, but um, but he uses it. Um, uh, I, I was reading First uh, Timothy because uh, uh, we're, we're going through that as well um, uh, throughout the summer and into the fall. Um, in First Timothy chapter three, he says he says a deacon, likewise, uh, verse eight, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and they must hold to they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. It's like, oh, dang, wait a second. Paul's saying, I think, that a deacon must share with, like, with full passion and full commitment this idea of Jew plus Gentile communities. Now, Paul's going to go on in the context there in, in, in 1 Timothy 3 to talk about the mystery that is the incarnation. God became a human suffered and died to save us. And I think, I think, I, I imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that Paul really, uh, that Paul in, in, in large measure has both in mind. It is the incarnation that is the means by which we get the result of these, this unifying Jew plus Gentile communities. Now, 
So we must, we must see Christ's incarnation, resurrection, salvation as intimately connected with the unification and bringing to, uh, well, as, as one scholar puts it, setting the world to rights. Those are not separate issues. They're not distractions from one another, but integral to the work of God and the gospel. So Paul says, of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the work of his power. To me, uh, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the, uh, to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul says, look, I was the very least. I am the very least. Now, we might say, okay, Paul's being humble here, and, and, and he is. But I think there's also a, a particular burden that he has. It's a special burden, because what, what, what did Paul do in his... Um, past life, in his life prior to Christ. Yeah, he persecuted Christians, right? Now, now, the question is, why? Why does he persecute Christians? And it's a little bit unclear, but let me, um, what do my teachers argue? Paul's there, Paul's there at Stephen's execution, right? His stoning. Now, he's holding the coats. He approves, but he's not participating. He thinks he's right to die, but maybe not for the charge that he's being charged with. But remember what Timothy was doing, well, not Timothy, what Stephen was up, was up to was serving Hellenistic Jews. Now, that might be Greek-speaking Jews, but also, like, we're probably looking at, like, there's, a, there, there's, some, there's some gospel going to the Gentiles happening in that community. And notice as Paul's, Paul gets all riled up and starts persecuting Christians, he's chasing them out of Jerusalem, and, and, uh, and, and Christians are fleeing, Paul leaves at least a good portion of the, of the apostles, the disciples, in Jerusalem untouched. It's a little bit odd. And he goes, of all places, to Damascus. The question is, why? Why Damascus? We know that the, the, uh, the apostles are working in, uh, uh, from, from Acts. They're in Samaria. They're preaching the gospel there. Why is he going to Damascus? And again, my, one of my teachers argued, well, he's going to Damascus because in Damascus, you have Jew plus Gentile communities already forming around the gospel. And it, that might be the thing that's, that's really upsetting Paul here. Does that, does that make sense? Not so much the declaration that Jesus is Messiah, but that in this Messiah, Jews and Gentiles are being brought together into one family. Now, that, that makes Paul's then later life extra heavy, right? We get, that, we get why this is so serious for him. But I think there's another piece that makes this so incredibly like, um, serious for Paul and why this weights on him so heavily. Paul was an elite in Jewish culture. He went to Harvard or Yale. He was a disciple of Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the great rabbis of Jewish history. And interestingly, Gamaliel shows up a couple of times in the book of Acts. In particular, um, uh, the, the, San, uh, the Sanhedrin 
has called in, oh shoot, I think it's, I think it's Peter and John. I don't remember, sorry, someone double check me. Um, they call in the disciples, uh, they, they agree that or, uh, there's, there's a whole discussion amongst the, uh, the Jewish ruling body to say like, are these guys dangerous? Do we need to get rid of them? Do we need to like, you know, take care of these guys? They're preaching this, this, uh, this Jesus uh, as resurrected. And, uh, and Gamaliel stands up in the midst of them and says, yo, we've seen this sort of thing before. If this is of men, it's going to die. Calm down. Like nothing's going to come of it if it's not from God. You don't, you don't need to worry. However, if these guys are from God, you may find yourself, you may find yourself working against the will of God. So let them go. Now, I don't know if you know much about discipleship, but the, the call of a disciple is to not just know what their teacher knows, not just to know what their rabbi knows, but to be who their rabbi is. Does Paul take his rabbi's advice? No. He jumps ship, apparently, from Gamaliel, a Pharisee, and goes to the Sadducees for permission, authority, to arrest Christians. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus comes to him and says, whoa, 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 Paul, I'm the Messiah. And I want you to share the gospel with the Gentiles. God turns his life on its head. And I think this creates for Paul a particular weight, a particular passion and commitment to, and a particular humility. He's like, hey, I'm not a hero. God, God called me, what, what does he say? By the, um, by the stewardship of his grace, right? By the stewardship of his grace that was given to me for you. I'm not a hero. I'm just doing my job. Isn't that what most heroes say? <laughs> so he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the work of his power. To me, though I am the very least of the, uh, of the saints, uh, this grace was given to preach, uh, uh, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Remember the context of Ephesus. They were a highly religious people devoted to the goddess Artemis or Diana. Artemis ran their economy. Right? This, is the, this is the New York City of Asia. Artemis, uh, the Temple of Artemis was the central bank of Asia, essentially. Um, and the, uh, and the, the sale of Artemis shrines or Artemis uh, uh, idols was a huge part of the local economy. And a part of that worship was, uh, was the use of magic. The Ephesians were obsessed with the sort of fate, with, uh, with uh, manipulating the spirits, the spiritual realm, to enhance their lives. Paul says, no, 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 no. 
remember, it is Jesus. It is Jesus, our King, our Father, our patron, who has unsearchable riches. Not Artemis, not the emperor. And when, like through faith in this Jesus, we live out multi-ethnic communities saved by grace through faith, seeking to live faithful, loyal love for Jesus out in our life here and now, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God is put on display for who? For other people? Yeah. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand how big this is. The wisdom of God, when we live out this gospel together, is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The angels look at us filled with the Spirit, saved by grace, seeing what God is able to do in us by his grace, and they learn and marvel. Ephesians, stop trying to access the spirits. Stop trying to get them to manipulate life on your behalf. No, no, no. You declare the gospel to them. This is so much bigger, right? It's so much bigger. Second half of... Um, Second half of verse 11, again, remember the Ephesians are, are sort of obsessed with fate. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God has a plan and a purpose. And however we sort of square that with, our, with, with who we are and, and, and what we are, however we sort of parse that out, God's purpose is being fulfilled. And so we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. That this, this God that we serve is not locked away in some temple somewhere is not in some palace in some faraway place uh, protected by guards that we don't have access to. No, no, no. In faith, we have bold, boldness and access with confidence. Does, that, does it ever bother you that the president never invites you over? Maybe he does. He never invites me over, right? None, none of them do, even though we live this close. But you know who we do have access to? that changes things, doesn't it? In Christ, we have access to the Father and we, can, and we have access not in, not, just, not in timidity, but in boldness and confidence. So he says, look, saints, I'm in prison. Yes, and I'm in prison because of you, Ephesians. That's no problem. It's no problem. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged for what I'm suffering because it is going to result in glory for you. This is not defeat or shame. It's not even like some like vague, like moral difficulty, a moral victory. Yeah, we lost, but we had more passing yards than them. No, 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 no. This is God's eternal plan. 
Stop thinking that there's some other spiritual power at work here. This is, not, this is not magic or Artemis or Caesar defeating me. Paul says it's God's plan. It's his means by which, in some very literal ways, Paul gets to be like Jesus. So Paul then remembers what he started this whole sentence for, right? Sometimes I have trouble remembering what I started that sentence for, right? Um, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to uh, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, uh, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. This is going to maybe throw us a little bit. He says, I bow my knee before the Father. Now we, probably in part because of this, see and and imagine kneeling as a posture of prayer, right? We do. It's 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 part of our culture and our history and our tradition. But at this point in history, the posture of prayer was standing. In the ancient Near East, people stood to pray. So Paul, I think, is, 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 is calling to mind something else. Who do you kneel before? The king. To make a petition. To honor appropriately. And to, to humble oneself. He says, I go to my king on your behalf, Ephesians. I go to him because of the riches of his glory. In him, all of us were created. All of us, all of our families and our, and our peoples get, bear their names because God has given them to us. And he calls us or he prays, sorry, he prays that we would be, or that the Ephesians would be, and us like it, would be granted strength through his spirit. That our inner beings would be strengthened. And that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And then he, he comes to like what I, I think his main thing for us and for the Ephesians, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, in the love of Christ. So in this, in this prayer, or this report, this prayer report, we see Paul's vision of a biblical hero. His vision of a biblical hero is not about what we might define as external success. At least not in terms of like honor or wealth or power. A biblical hero is defined by love. 
Now, maybe it being if we've grown up in the church, that seems sort of obvious, but I think it was, it was, it was a seismic shift for the Ephesians in their culture. And as we work through the rest of Ephesians, I think it will continue to be a seismic shift in our culture because it doesn't mean maybe what our culture would expect it to mean. It's not a permissive love. Do what you want. It is a loyal love. As God had commanded and the people of God had recited for thousands of years, they are, they will, we, uh, uh, he's calling them to love the Lord his God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, with everything that they are. Love him. And the second command, it's just like it. Love your neighbors as yourselves. That's how we need to redefine heroism and heroics in our sanctified imaginations, saints. God's love, and therefore, like, the love he's poured out on us and what we need to share with our world is a love that crosses ethnic boundaries, that crosses socio-political boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries. I was thinking back to my theological training. I'm like, I, I don't ever remember this. We didn't talk about this in thinking through Ephesians. Like, how, how did I miss this? And, and two answers come to mind, just as an aside. One is that so much of the, of, of the theology that I read was, was rooted in that, that European tradition. Again, not, not, that the, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but was written in a context where diversity wasn't, cultural and ethnic diversity wasn't a thing. Does that make sense? And so we miss it. Second, you come to the history of the United States, where that heresy of racial hierarchy and white supremacy becomes so ingrained in our culture, in our history. Maybe we've chosen or become habituated not to see it. So since our homework, among other things, is to pray this prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, for our church, for the other churches that we know, that we take this up, that the gospel wouldn't just be about me going to heaven, but about the gospel spreading out and creating a new people, a new humanity, a new family. overcoming any human boundaries, that the world would know that God is God because of us and that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be adopted into his family. So Paul closes this prayer with this just amazing statement of praise and, and, like, and, and an incredible statement of like reassurance for us, right? We've, we've read it the last two weeks. We'll read it again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think 
according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in, uh, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Saints, Paul is calling us, I think, to dream bigger, to pray bigger for his church. You ever find yourself like, I, I think this happens to me, right? I'm like, we got, we got, little, we got little problems. I got little, I, oh, Father, help the baby to sleep. I just want to get some sleep. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But God's got something bigger for his people. He's got something bigger for his church. And look, and look, we're not talking about riches. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about lives saved, justice done, unlovable people loved. Now, we're praying to purchase a building, aren't we? An incredible tool and opportunity that God has given us, or that, or that, that God may give us to reach our community. And and we're reminded, for God, this is a small thing. It's no problem for him. It's light work for him, even though maybe it feels intimidating for us. But the thing he wants to do in us is to see us and our kids and our grandkids, our friends and our neighbors rooted and established with strength and power in the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the building. That's the temple of the Holy Spirit that God wants to build. Remember we said last week, you are living stones. You're a stone and you're a stone and you're a stone and you're a stone. He's building into God, his spiritual house. So whatever we do, that's the house we're building. That's the building we're building, saints. For God and for his, his praise and his glory. So as God's people, to be a hero is radically different from what it is in our, in, in our culture. The achievements and noble qualities of a Christian hero aren't enemies killed or dollars earned or points scored, but love, Act, living out love, love that makes family out of enemies. Not a vague or permissive love, but that same love that makes up the two great commandments, love for God and love for our neighbor. Love that is, a loyal, uh, that is loyal to Jesus as our king. Remember Jesus' instructions in John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says, you will obey my commands. So, as we turn to Ephesians 4 in two weeks, Lord willing, we'll begin to unpack Paul's understanding of what it means to live out a life of loyal love and obedience to Christ. Now take note, take note, uh, uh, Dr. Esau McCauley uh, a, a, few, uh, a few days ago noted, it's hard to be a faithful multi-ethnic church unless you're committed to justice because having a diverse church includes the Pauline command to bear one another's burdens. If one refuses to bear uh, the burdens of injustice, others suffer 
authentic community is compromised. So our task this week is to bear, to bear the burdens of one another. The love of Christ for one another means bearing burdens, not blaming, building up, not tearing down, seeing, not ignoring, being uncomfortable, not comfortable, sacrificial and giving, not consuming. Paul's imprisonment and Jesus's crucifixion was not a failure of courage or a lack of arms or whatever, whatever other like heresy might be spouted in our culture, but bold acts of love that stand as examples for us to follow. And those bold acts of love reshaped the world. So in faith, therefore, we must act in love, trusting the abundant power of God, whose spirit is within us, that God is able to transform Anacostia, surrounding communities, and all the nations from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe into communities where his love and righteousness reign. I heard someone, and I can't figure out where I heard it, um, criticize superheroes because they, they far too often prefer to leave the world as it is instead of doing the little things to make, uh, to make the world better. God's calling us to do the little things, to do the little acts of love, not to wait till the world's in crisis, but to love our neighbors as ourselves day in and day out. Paul's mission and Paul's uh, and God's call to us is that by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we would be unwilling to see Anacostia stay the way it is, but to love its people so sacrificially that our neighbors would be left with no chance to avoid the question of Jesus, but in the face of the love they see in us and experience from us, they'd be forced to decide, is Jesus going to be their Lord or not? Let's pray. Father, we come to you humbly, knowing that you are our generous king, our generous father, our generous patron, our generous savior. From you, every family, nation, tribe, and tongue has come into being. So Father, we ask that from the riches of your glory that you would grant to us to, uh, uh, to strengthen with power through your Holy Spirit our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That we would be further rooted and further established in love and that we may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, that we would know, uh, that we would know that love, the love of the of Messiah Jesus, our Lord, that surpasses all knowledge. Gracious and generous Father, with confidence and boldness, we ask that you we ask that you would give uh, that you would fill us with the fullness of your grace, uh, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that the world would know that you are God because of us. Amen.